The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Season 2 of Students of Mind, the podcast where we aim to normalize conversations about mental health. Last season, we connected you with experts in the field of mental health to provide an understanding of topics and illnesses that may not have been easily accessible. This season, we will continue our learning journey together by not only speaking to experts, but also by listening to the voices and stories of real people who are living, surviving, and even thriving while also facing challenges with their mental health in their everyday life. This season, we want to hear your stories to get the full truth of what it's like to manage one's mental health and navigate living with mental illness. My name is Jade, and today I'm sitting down with Heather Hutchison to talk about having a son with mental illness and their journey through navigating the mental health care system in America. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's guest is Heather Hutchison. Heather is a writer, mental health advocate, and single mother of four. After going through the inadequacies and frustrations that came with getting mental health care for her son, Heather has dedicated her work to assisting families with navigating the mental health care system. In our conversation, Heather talks about the experience of having a child whose symptoms appeared very early on, the struggle of getting access to the knowledge and resources needed, and how her son's healing journey has affected her and her family's lives. 
So welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. Me too. Before we get into the topic of today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. So my name's Heather, and I uh, am a single mom. I've been a single mom for about nine years now um, to four well, they're not all teenagers anymore. One turned 20 a couple months ago, um, but to four kids. And uh, um, my oldest son has struggled with um, chronic mental illness since he was a toddler. And so um, that got me into the world of mental health and learning things I hadn't previously known and um, kind of learning how broken the system is. So um, I've spent a lot of years being an advocate for change in the mental health system, um, but also supporting a lot of families who, you know, find themselves frequently in a situation with a child or a teenager um, who's struggling and not really knowing where to turn or looking for advice or support or um, resources and things like that. So I provide that um, and I do um, workshops and um, write articles and essays and things like that um, specifically for caretakers of children and teens um, for whether it's parents or foster parents or um, you know just guardians because um, it's a hard thing and, and usually when you find yourself in that situation you don't have experience and you need some support so I've kind of become that like bridge kind of between the clinicians and the and the families so that's what I do. That's so great. That is very needed. I know that there's some things in the works policy-wise for more like peer support um, or people with lived support in community health spaces. Yeah. So hearing that you're yeah. kind of doing that in your own initiative is great because um, we definitely need more people who are going through what we're going through in absolutely. medical spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's so interesting uh, to hear your perspective, because for me, I'm on the other side. I have lived with mental illness my whole life and went through a few rough years where my parents were my caretakers um, and, you know, helping me with medications and hospital stuff. So... For me, I, I'm seeing this from, um, you know, the child side, yeah. and mm -hmm. I've seen how hard it's been for my mom to just see me being sick, deal with all the paperwork that you have to do, just everything. I, I witnessed that. Um, yeah. So with your experience, can you just go into what it was like being a mother of a child with mental illness? Can you start talking about that journey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it originally started um, when he was really young. And uh, when I started seeking help, I mean, we're talking like by two years old. Um, and some of the things I had noticed where um, he had stopped sleeping. Um, when I look back now, and now that I, you know, I've had three other kids and, you know, um, a lot further into this journey, I can see um, other things that I probably missed, like sensory wise. He absolutely had sensory integration disorder, but I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what I was looking for. Um, I just thought he was an easy baby. He didn't want really to be held. Um, you know, he always wanted to just be on his own. Um, but before he was two, he stopped sleeping and, um, you know, I started seeking out the doctor and started throwing tantrums. But I mean, like, 
epic meltdowns that lasted hours and were massively violent. But, you know, the pediatrician um, just kept saying, he's a boy, you're a first-time mom, babies and toddlers don't sleep, like, this is normal, you know, you're over-exaggerating. And, you know, I was like, I, I really need you to hear me. Like, when I say he's not sleeping, like, he's no longer taking a nap and he's maybe sleeping three to five hours at a night. And a toddler and a baby should be sleeping minimum 12 hours in a 24-hour time period, you know? Um, and I just was not taken seriously. And so um, that kind of set me into a space of feeling like a failure because um, I would doubt myself like I'm like is it really me you know maybe I'm not consistent enough I'm not disciplining right or whatever um, and it wasn't until he was three and I had a second child that um, I was married to a marine and they had a program where a nurse um, on base would come and visit you when you had a new baby just to make sure everybody was adjusting and see if you needed any help and so she came um, to visit when um, my second son was a couple a few months old and she witnessed one of those just epic meltdowns and I was so grateful that she did because nobody else had really seen it and um, we were in Augusta Children's Hospital uh, within the week which was about four hours away and he was hospitalized for the first time in a psychiatric hold at three years old so um, that was awful. I mean, I didn't even know anyone in my life at that point who had had um, a family member who had been hospitalized for psychiatric care. I mean, I probably did. I just didn't know, you know, it wasn't talked about. I didn't know that I did. So I had zero experience, you know, I had no idea what to expect. Um, and that dropped us into the psychiatric care kind of a journey that, that led us down the road. Um, it's been long and it's been hard on all of us. I mean, it's been painful for him. And I think one of the things that I didn't know that I'm really fast to tell families about now is that oftentimes there's going to be multiple diagnoses along the way before the right one has come to, you know, before the right medication um, cocktail is discovered, before the right treatment plan is found. And that can be just as discouraging as everything else, you know, trying to figure out what's helpful for your child because it's it's not a quick fix and there's not a like linear path to, to getting there that's hard to watch your child suffer yeah yeah I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I don't think people talk about that aspect of mental health care often because there's so much exhaustion that comes as a result of putting your body through trying all these medications or trying different therapists and providers and like creating connections with people then having to break them and move to someone yes. else. So yes. yeah, it's, it's a lot. I know for me, it's, it was too much at times. So I have scarce memory of the time. And I, I hear that from, you know, friends who were going through similar things where it's like it was just too much for us to even process so our minds have just erased the that period of our lives oh yeah my son says that often he has lots of missing you know memory from those kinds of things and it's not just um the exhaustion of trying to make connections with the therapist and and putting yourself through um, the medication. One thing that was hard for me as a mom um, to do, and then now have watched as he's gotten older, that he's had to do, 
is the continual like rehashing of all of the awful things to each new doctor, to each new therapist. It's really traumatizing. Um, you know, as a mom, when I'm sitting in a room and he's four or five years old and I really need the doctor to understand, you know, how serious this is, how, you know, we need help, make sure that I'm not sugarcoating everything. But I, my child is sitting there and the things that I'm saying sound like I'm saying he's a horrible person. Like that was really difficult. And I learned um, <clears throat> to start um, asking if I could talk to them outside of the room because that bothered me. And then the continual, you know, every time he's been to the hospital, he's been hospitalized 12 times. Um, and I know that in the emergency room, they have to ask, you know, do you, are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you do, do you have a plan? Um, but I met with the entire board, um, of the mental health providers here at the, at Mary Washington hospital, which is the area that we're in in Virginia. Um, and gave them some suggestions. And one of the things I said was, I get that you have to ask that question, but when every single person who comes into the room, who's treating your child asks that it is incredibly traumatizing, you know, that just continual traumatization. Are you feeling suicidal? Yes. Do you have a plan? No. Would you tell us if you did? Yes. Um, and then the net, you know, the nurse comes in and asks the same, it's just, that part's emotionally exhausting for everybody in the family too. And it just breaks my heart. Yeah. I, um, again, I'm so glad that you're saying these things because I just don't think these things are being said, especially just the nitty gritty of mental health treatment. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's not just the actual treatment. It's like speaking about your experience is hard too. And so having, like you're saying, having to do that all the time, is really distressing and hard on the body too. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So going back to um, talking about diagnoses, you mentioned how, you know, usually there's not just one. Um, After he received a diagnosis uh, like that first one, what were kind of your next steps? I know like you mentioned that you didn't really have any prior experience dealing with this type of thing. So you know, were there supports there to help you with the next steps after your son was diagnosed? No, there wasn't. Um, so when he was discharged from the hospital, uh, that first time at three years old, in fact, I just dug out the, um, discharge papers the other day. I wanted to read them again. Um, they diagnosed him at that time with bipolar, which is almost unheard of. There's lots of doctors who are very staunch on saying that bipolar does not exist, you know, before 18. Some will say 16. Um, lots will say it doesn't show up until early adulthood. I firmly disagree. And there's lots of us parents out there um, that I've since found uh, through the internet who would say, I've absolutely believe my child was born with bipolar um, and it showed up right away. Um, But at that time, so 17 years ago, you know, bipolar still has stigma to it. Mental health still has, you know, stigma attached to it. But bipolar was like, that was a scary diagnosis for me to get, especially when I had no experience with mental health at all. And so um, I was terrified. There was probably um, some shame at that time that's, you know, gone now. But because I wasn't educated um, about it, um, it seemed like a crazy diagnosis to me at the time because I wasn't educated. So what I did was I just started researching. Um, there was a book called uh, The Bipolar Child, and I bought that, which is a, it's a good book. It's still out there. I think it's been revised. 
Um, and there's bipolar teen as well. And I just did I mean, it's like this thick and I just researched everything I could find and, um, started looking on the internet. Um, I started blogging because I was desperate to find, I was like, surely we're not the only ones, you know, like it's not, we're not an anomaly. Um, I just needed to find connections so bad and I really struggled to find it um, at that time. And then, of course, we were told we needed to see a psychiatrist um, after he was discharged, but then I couldn't find a psychiatrist who wanted to see anybody under the age of five. And so that was really, really hard um, because I was like, well, we had a hospitalization. Now they've started him on some psychiatric drugs. Like we have to have some follow through. We did find someone, but it was several hours away. Um, there were no support groups, but to be honest, this is another kind of sticking point that I've, I've had through the years goes back to what you were saying earlier about the exhaustion is I needed support. Um, I don't think I would have even gone to a support group, like trying to have the emotional energy to get myself up out of the house into a group to hash through everybody's trauma, even though it, it, there's probably things about it that could have been beneficial. I, I just couldn't have done it. And I had a child that wasn't really safe to leave with him and couldn't leave him with a babysitter. So I, I wouldn't have sought out that kind of support. I needed the, the support that I needed is kind of some of the stuff I'm offering now. I wanted to find an article that, you know, had some empathy for me and let me know that there was hope. And I just, I couldn't find it. Like it just didn't exist. Um, so I started writing it and that's kind of what started my whole just incredible obsession with this whole thing was there's a lot of us families out there and we're all suffering in silence you know you don't go on Facebook and on Instagram and share pictures of your child in the hospital bed when they're in the psychiatric ward the way that you do when they're getting chemo you know and so a lot of us are here but nobody knows you know some of the people who have contacted me behind the scenes and asked for help um, people in the public eye would have no idea that their child you know even from what they're posting on online that their child is currently you know hospitalized because it's not a safe place to share because of the judgment. So yeah, there wasn't much support there. I've had very little support actually through the entire process, sadly. Yeah, I think that's very common. I, I also think we need to just start redefining support around this because energy in those time periods is so valuable. Um, yes. And so I think yes. there's definitely ways to support each other. Um, okay, so after receiving the diagnosis and honestly, when everything started, how did this affect your and your family's lives? Because I know you said when he was hospitalized, you had your second child at that point already. So how, how did that affect family life? Um, for a lot of years, it was, uh, incredibly chaotic. Um, and because he was not stable for, I mean, he's 20 now and he came out of residential treatment after he was 16. So he's been home for three and a half years now. Um, and that's, this is the longest period of time he's been stable in his entire life, like since he's been born. And, um, he was very violent. Um, it, it impacted everyone in our home. Um, there was a lot of, you know, me just trying to keep everyone safe. Um, we didn't know what mood would show up each day. Um, he often 
hurt, you know, several of us, um, if not all of us, um, broke things, broke their things, um, ran away. Um, and even when he was little, like with, with the autism, he has, he's also on the autism spectrum. You just run out of the house, and just take off. Um, there was a lot, there, it was very high risk and a lot of chaos. And so it created these trauma bonds and some codependency, um, that we're still working out, you know, that we're still working out to this day. Um, he's aware of a lot of it now. He's incredibly mature. He's really stable. Um, we've talked through a lot of it. Um, but, but it was very terrifying and there was, um, always at all times, there was a level of anxiety with all of us in the family, um, and worried about him. And, um, there were a lot of years that I was afraid that, um, he may take his life, you know, and so the hyper vigilance of, um, you know, even sleeping next to his bed sometimes and just that fear of trying to keep him alive and everybody else safe was um, extremely traumatic and painful and chaotic for many, many years. Yeah, I want to pause for a second because... Sure. Whenever I do these interviews, I tend, I feel like we start going really fast and sometimes talking about this can bring things up. So thank you so much just for like being open and vulnerable about talking about that period of your life. Yeah. No, thank you for allowing it to have space, you know, cause I know that I'm not the only one and I, it's sometimes fascinating to look back and realize how terrified and hopeless I felt for so long and some of that trauma is now seeping out and I'm having to process it now because there was no time to process it then, you know? Um, and so I, you know, I don't think I could, I could have talked about it at the time, but probably not in a very objective way, you know? So, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad to talk about it because it needs to be shared. Yeah. And I think it's usually not best to talk about it in the moment. Um, yeah, it's best to yeah. be a little bit f further removed from it. Um, I agree. Yeah. And just going further into that, since everything that you've been through, what has your healing looked like? I know you talked a little bit about being in therapy uh, with your son sometimes. Um, but what else have you done for your own healing process? Um, it's been a hodgepodge of... Um, good and bad choices, I would say. So, um, I went to therapy, I've been to therapy on my own or, you know, worked out some of my own stuff unrelated to him, also related to him and being a mother. Um, I, uh, did yoga for quite a few years, several times a week. Um, and ironically, uh, when he went to residential treatment, he was gone for nine months. I thought, you know, I'll exhale, it'll be peaceful. I mean, I didn't want him to be gone and that was, there was a lot of grief there, but I knew he was safe. Um, I thought, you know, I'll exhale, it'll be peaceful. I mean, I didn't want him to be gone and that was, there was a lot of grief there, but I knew he was safe. Um, <clears throat> thought I would get a lot done, thought I would go to therapy and actually everything, I fell apart. Um, and I think it's because it was the first time since he had been born that there was space for me to fall apart. You know, I always had to hold it together. So I got really depressed, drank too much, didn't go back to yoga, gained weight. Like that was all, it just, it was bad. 
Um, I have made sure I do take time for myself um, and my kids. I mean, I love my children, but they know that. You know, I have friends and um, I have things that I do outside of them. And um, there's been several times that I've gone away for a weekend just by myself, not with friends, not with anyone. I've gone on a couple of silent retreats to a monastery where that's, you know, you just go and stay in nature. And um, that's the point is you're just quiet and you're there to nourish yourself. Um, and I've been a couple of times to a cabin in the woods um, just to read and be and not have to be responsible for anyone. Um, and went back to therapy again when, you know, new stuff came up, um, participated, uh, with him in therapy regularly when he was in residential treatment. We had therapy together once a week, which was really good. And then writing a lot. And so I started writing what I thought was his story as kind of a memoir, starting when he was four or five, always wanting, you know, seeking to get published and have kept writing it on and off. And I just recently, um, pushed and finished it and have sent it out to agents and I needed that much time to go by and I needed the growth to happen because I'm not telling his story I'm telling my story you know um and how I've grown and changed and matured and um how my mental health was affected and you know um what that looks like and all the dynamics and and writing about that was hard you know I really was got really gut wrenchingly honest about um, the experience and it was hard. It was hard to process through that again um, and read back on some of my journal entries and, and diaries that I had written so long ago when I felt incredibly helpless, you know, and, and just couldn't save him or fix him out of this horrible disease. But it's also been healing too. I don't think, again, you know, I thought I was writing his story and I don't think I would have been able to um, write it well before now. I needed that this space of when he's been stable and it's been peaceful and I can um, have the space to think about it because it was traumatic and it was traumatic for every, including my other three children. You know, I, I know that they have trauma because of this. So, yeah, it's a continual checking in. With, I'm on medication now. I'm on um, anti-anxiety medication, which I had never been previously, um, which has helped immensely. I had no idea how anxious I was. And so I started, started taking it and was like this, <laughs> wow, I feel like I can take a deep breath. Um, so yeah, it's all of those things, um, for good and for bad. Yeah. You mentioned so many good things, like especially checking in with yourself. I don't think people realize the value in like just pausing and checking in with yourself and seeing how you feel I know for me I can go through an entire day without doing that and then at the end of the day I will feel a lot I'll feel super anxious I'll feel overwhelmed yeah. but if I yeah. do it more times throughout the day I won't be filling up that anxiety bottle the entire day yeah so yeah that's I I love that you mentioned that
you talked about how so your son was in residential for nine months and then he's been out of like intensive treatment you said for like three and a half years now now that he's out of treatment and older as well how has your relationship shifted or the way you support him like for my mom and I for example I needed a lot of warmth and touch and love when I was younger um, to help with my anxiety but as you know now that I'm older I don't need that much as much of that from her and there are supports that I needed from her that I don't get from her anymore I get from other sources so that relationship for us changed which was hard because my mom had gotten so comfortable with being my caretaker being able to hold me all the time and and really be hands-on with me and then when that started to stop that was hard for her so I I'm wondering um as your son has gotten older and has been going further through his healing process, how has the way you support him changed, if at all? I think part of the way is we've kind of worked our way out of such a codependent relationship, which just, it had become just kind of by default, I think. I'm not, maybe I'm not out of it long enough or not further away from it enough to really identify how to navigate this kind of um, like ongoing trauma without there being some codependency developed. Um, It just seems like it happens because you're both on one hand, you're both kind of fighting against this monster together um, and it creates this bond, you know, that's different um, than it is with other kids. So we've worked our way out of that um, quite a bit. He, the reason he did so well in residential is because he committed to the process himself. You know, it's it's not that that was a magic thing. Um, it's that I think he took it seriously. He worked really hard and he had a good therapist. Um, and that made a huge difference, um, in his success. And so coming home, um, working through some of that that therapy that we did while he was in and then coming home um it had created even a greater level of honesty for us to be able to just really talk about things that were going on um he's very good about um being self-aware about where he's at emotionally um even if he can't identify why you know he'll he can tell me i'm feeling really anxious or you know i need you to um, give me some space because I'm feeling irritable or whatever, which he wasn't able to do before. Um, so that's that's gotten a lot healthier. Um, we have it's developed a little more into a friend relationship, um, more so than caretaker, um, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. You know, I really enjoy him. I enjoy his personality. Um, I missed out on that for a lot of years, you know, and so I'm really in, enjoying this part of our relationship. It's new and um, I I really like it. I like watching him interact with his siblings now that they enjoy him, they're not scared of him. Um, I like seeing how his brain works, you know, that's been really cool. So probably the place that I'm still caretaker is just in the fact that um, he did graduate from high school and we had a plan in place for him to attend a, a kind of a 
special school that operates kind of like college, but it works with uh, trades and stuff like that. And so he would go and live on that campus and they would um, work with him to certify him in a trade. And he was going to learn to drive there and all that kind of stuff. And then COVID happened. So he graduated at the beginning in 2020. So it was at the beginning of COVID. Um, and that was supposed to happen last year and it just still hasn't happened. So he's kind of been on pause as far as like moving his future forward and, and being bipolar. There's a lot of issues with sleep that he still struggles with. So, um, he may not ever be able to have a full-time job. And so he may live with me for an extended period of time. Um, but if he does, it would only be be because financially it might be too difficult for him to live on his own. Um, although he, I think, you know, he'd get a roommate or something like that eventually. But my role as a caretaker is greatly, greatly diminished. You know, I don't, I don't do much. I see him as a friend and um, he comes to me for guidance and that sort of thing. But um, I don't manage his medication. Um, he does that and um, I pick it up, but that's about it. Um, so it's, it's changed dramatically, but it's been a good change and I feel like it's happened, um, organically and kind of slowly. And, um, also because as he's getting older, it, it didn't feel like it was, um, jarring or out of place or, you know, any of that. So it's, it's been good for, for us. That's so good. And it sounds just hearing you speak about his behavior changes and the skills he has now it seems like he's made so much progress um which is amazing yeah it is it is I mean I didn't know if he would make it this far in life period you know but to be here and for me to even you know leave for work in the morning and so he's home and to say hey can you do the dishes and have them be done when I get home and that sounds like such a minor thing but that's huge like I either I would have asked him to do something before and he either would have raged and not done it or wouldn't have had the skill set or the ability to um, think through all the steps that needed to be done to get whatever that task is that I was asking him to do and so having him be not just a functional member of the household but a contributing member of the household I didn't know that I would ever see that I mean he is just our lives today are completely different from what it was even five years ago before he went to treatment. And, you know, I had police here um, escorting us to the emergency room, you know. So it's it's been shocking, but I'm so grateful. I mean, for him as well, that he has peace, and it's nice to see that on his face, you know. Wow, that's beautiful. I'm really happy for you guys. Me too. I'm proud of him. He's worked hard. Um, and you talked about this at the beginning, but can you talk more about the work that you do now and how everything you went through influences what you do today? Yeah. So I started realizing that, I mean, the clinicians play a huge role and, you know, from the social workers to caseworkers, nurses, doctors, therapists, you know, all, all of them, um, obviously they're critical in mental health treatment. The problem is a lot of times their suggestions or their treatment offerings are really textbook and they're really sterile and they maybe make sense on paper, but they don't really flesh out real life. And I needed someone who could look at me and say, you know, 
I know we've told you to create these sticker charts and they don't seem to be working for you. So be released. Like, who gives a crap about the sticker charts? Like, forget the, t you know, instead of like, well, are you guys working on the sticker charts? That should really help. Like, I don't have time to do a freaking sticker chart, you know? I, I needed kind of that middleman person. And so I've kind of become that, you know, I've built relationship with a lot of mental health people. I've, um, you know, I feel like I have earned my degree in a level of at least child, you know, children's psychology, even though it's not, I don't have a real degree in that, obviously. But um, I speak the language to the clinicians, but I also speak the language of the families. And I think that that is a piece that's missing a lot. And even when I was, you know, writing my memoir, one of the things that you have to do um, when you're wanting to get published is uh, create a book proposal to essentially tell an agent why they should work with you and, and try to get your book published. <clears throat> and a piece of that is they want you to um, put in um, comparative titles. So they want they want to know that there's a market for what you're writing and um, you know how successful those other books have been. And so I started going through and doing the research and the reality is very, very little has been written from a caretaker or a parent's point of view unless they themselves have major mental illness um, or they're also a healthcare professional. So it just doesn't exist where a parent is out there telling their story um, while also offering some suggestions and resources. And I, I started learning that, you know, this whole journey uh, to getting resources, um, that's a joke too, because there you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, I didn't know until he was at high school that, I mean, this may sound silly, but I didn't know. I didn't know when he was, until he was in high school, that we could use um, social services. I thought, one, social services was just meant like CPS was involved. And I thought that you had to be poor in order to qualify for social services, which isn't true at all. Um, we ended up getting a caseworker through our community services board, and that ended up being the avenue that took us into residential care eventually. And then also when he got out of residential care, put him into a private school that was the, I mean, the most phenomenal school I could have ever picked for him. And we would never have gotten that had we not gone through, through the community services, through the social services. But I didn't even know that was an option to me. Somebody made a just offhand comment in one of our IEP meetings meetings when he was in the ninth grade and I was like wait what is that you're asking you're saying oh it's this program blah 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 and I was like why are we not in this program like what is how do I not know about this program you know so I think a lot of parents just don't even know what's available like you you start this journey and you start to realize well maybe it's the pediatrician and maybe a psychiatrist but you don't know that there's literally so many other avenues. I mean, he's done equine therapy that we ended up finding out about through scholarships, you know, all that stuff. So part of what I do is to help um, families with a blueprint of like, here are some things specifically, you know, your child has autism. These are a whole bunch of things that are available to you as a parent or a guardian of a child who has autism or your, you know, your child has anxiety. These are all sorts of things that you can do to help your child or get resources, including, you know, advocating for them at school and, you know, the ways to, to go about doing that. Um, you know, your child has depression or doing, you know, there's self-harm. This is what, you know, let's look into this. Um, I've written several essays about what to expect when you go into the emergency room um, with your child uh, for the first time for mental health, you know, because nobody 
told me what to expect with that either. It's terrifying. You don't know what to do. And um, so I broke that all down. Um, you know, what to expect with your first acute hospitalization. I think a lot of us, like what I said earlier, especially when you get to the hospitalization part, you think, well, now we're going to get some answers. You know, we're going to come out. They're going to have a plan. They're going to have a diagnosis. Not at all. Like usually the child is just being kept safe for a few days and nothing happens. Nothing. You might now be on the radar to get, you know, some more help with a psychiatrist, but that's about it. And that's really disappointing when you don't know anything about the process. And so I kind of see myself as a guide for families um, to kind of lead them through this process when you have to figure it out on your own and you don't even know where to start. You know, how can you know what you don't know? Um, so that's part of what I do. My goal is um, to get to the place where I'm able to work full time doing workshops and speaking and you know writing because I think this is something it's not going away and it needs to be talked about more and more and more and including workshops for teachers as well you know I want to I'm educating teachers a lot of times mental health crises are treated as, as like it's a behavioral problem and it's not and kids get you know, um, pigeonholed at an early age that then follows them. And so then we've got, you know, the school to prison pipeline that's filling up. And a lot of that can be traced back to untreated mental health problems early on. So I'm just super passionate about it. And at the very beginning of um, seeking out a bigger audience to continue this conversation, because I think it's vital. I think if we're missing it with our kids and our teens, then we're creating a society of adults later that are struggling, you know, because we missed it or we didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting hearing what you're talking about because it's so similar to what I'm doing right now. And like recently I've actually started for a couple friends who have like not even asked me, but I've just seen them like on social media, like, Oh, does anyone know a therapist or a psychiatrist? I have made these, like, sheets for them based on wherever they live of, like, therapists, uh, financial support for psychiatric services, psychiatrists, free therapy resources. Um, and then some of my friends are, like, indigenous, so indigenous-specific resources. So, but I do that because I know personally, like, I have recently just moved and have had to deal with creating an entire new treatment team in my new city and that's so stressful and traumatizing and exhausting and I was like oh if there was someone who I could go to and be like I just moved to LA and I have all of these diagnoses these this is the treatment I was doing can I get these resources down here and take that out of the equation for me so I don't have to worry about that stuff I just get like a list of um, referrals that are actually helpful for my specific situation yes um, so that's what I'm like seeking out like looking out to see if anyone's doing right now and trying to develop a way to do it that's sustainable because it's a lot of work <laughs> um researching for other people um but yes everything that you're doing is so important and I'm so excited that you're doing it I didn't plan on doing those things but that has happened numerous times mm -hmm. where families have come to me and asked for help and so I end up kind of like what you're doing creating this blueprint but it, it is it is a lot of work 
Um, and like you're saying, I mean, I didn't mind doing it because I wish somebody had done that for me. And right. it, it, I think we suffered an extended period of time that maybe could have been cut a little shorter had we had knowledge of some of the resources that were available that I literally didn't even know existed. Like I didn't even know it was a thing, you know? Um, yeah. And I had wanted at some point, you know, I was like, I wish there was a website. You know, I had a website that like that one website had all like is like a catalog of not even just all the therapists in each area. I, you know, I thought about that, like the in each big major city area, you know, they do this kind of therapy and the, you know, the DBT and all that. Um, not just that, but then also had the additional information of like what to expect when you go to the emergency room and what do I do when I go to acute care and. Um, I had this diagnosis, but now they say it's this diagnosis, and what do I do about that? And um, when I, when we started, I didn't even know what the difference was between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Like I didn't know that they played different roles. I mean, why would I had no reason to know that before I was thrown into this? And I think that's pretty common. You know, I didn't know that there was a such thing as a developmental pediatrician and that they can play a vital role in mental health for kids and teenagers. I had no idea that that was a thing, you know? So it's hard to get a full treatment plan when you don't even know what your options are, you know? Yeah. And like, you're, you're mentioning things that I don't even know about and which is terrifying to me because I feel like I've... <clears throat> have the unique experience of being thrown into the mental health care system very young. Um, well, I, and I think this also is because I am black and, and there are a lot yeah, of yeah. other barriers around, you know, oh, people yeah, of yeah. color. It's, it's further complicated. Absolutely. But it's, yeah, it's just frustrating that like at the point that I'm in, in, in my healing that I'm finding out some of these things that should have been told to me years ago yeah um so yeah I think you keep saying uh you don't know what you don't know and that's so so true and so potent when it comes to mental health yeah I mean it can be deadly you know and it's and I've also learned that for some reason the different you know groups and departments don't communicate with one another either so you know I it, we even had a caseworker through social services but um, I had heard that we could probably get a Medicaid waiver, um, which even though we had insurance, I mean, I got to a place several years ago where I ended up going through bankruptcy because of medical um, expenses. It was so extreme. Um, and my caseworker had no idea that there was a waiver for mental health to be wow. able to apply for Medicare. And um, that's a problem you know like we're st we've been on the waiting list now for three years we're still not off the waiting list but we could have been on the waiting list 10 years ago you know or, or had this done had someone told me but I didn't know to ask because I didn't know it was an option you know and then when I did ask um my caseworker was not informed and that's a problem you know so it's frustrating that the families and the patients are the ones who have to do so much of the legwork when like I mean I just love that you made such made it so clear about how it's exhausting and it's hard on your body because um, it it truly truly is yeah and you know I it's I get nervous sometimes and overwhelmed just looking at the state of mental health right now and Same. it feels like there's so much work 
Um, but then I talk to people like you, and it makes me realize that one, there's more of me because <laughs> I was really nervous because yeah. there was no one like when I was like 10 and 11 and I was already talking about this stuff because I was going through it um and no one else around me was remotely talking about anything like it and to me that was like oh okay I'm the only one who's going through this so sure like I'm an anomaly so I know that there's a lot of work to do, but talking to you and, um, you know, like-minded people gives me a lot of hope for the future. Yeah, it does for me too, because it can be discouraging for me as well, but I think it's it has to shift, and the only way it's going to shift is by us. You know, I don't know that it's going to shift um, because of anything that the doctors do. Not that there's not good ones out there, because of course there are. Um, but the way that we've set up mental health care in our country, um, is not, is that's not sustainable over the long haul. And we're seeing that, which is why we have, you know, our, our prisons are the biggest mental health hospital in our nation. And that's, that's disgusting. You know, it's just, it's, I feel like it's a crime against humanity. Like that's just not, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. It's not. And anybody, it can happen to anyone, you know, my, could it could have been my child who that could have happened to ended up in jail because of untreated illness or mistreated illness or uninformed police officers or, you know, those right. kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's another piece that is important to me is that, um, the law enforcement piece, because there are some who are working hard to educate themselves, but the reality is, you know, they say more than 50%, sometimes up to 80% of their calls are for mental health issues. Then you should know, how to handle it and how to get them resources. And I think a lot of times they don't, and that's a problem, you know? So we need more of us to keep attacking all these spots because there's, you're right, there's a lot of work to be done. But yeah, I'm glad to have found you too because it is, it is discouraging. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and you're, you're doing so much work and I'm so excited to, um, continue to connect with you after this um but for people listening who may want to learn more about you and see the work that you do or get into contact with you what are some ways that people can follow you at the moment you can find me um if you have my name up there if they can see it's heather hutchison um there's no n in there so it's not heather hutchinson but heather hutchison um i am on tiktok um do mental health uh videos on there um, my Facebook is public so that you can find me there and I've, um, written a lot of stuff there as well. Um, you can Google my name. I have, uh, multiple, uh, articles that I've written about mental health through different, um, magazines throughout the years. And my Instagram also is public. And so I have just a little bit going on everywhere. Um, I'm in the process of, um, standing up my nonprofit so that we can start getting some funding just talked to somebody this week who's mentoring me in that he has his own nonprofit, and um so the goal is to have that stood up pretty quickly so that um with some funding i can even start to offer some some free workshops um so that would be announced on any of those avenues and then you know i would have a website that i would direct you to from all of those social media outlets so hopefully you guys can find me um and follow along as we continue this journey because we all need all the help we can get and we need some more mental health warriors like us out there doing this work.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. This was a really important one for me because I have been in the same position as Heather's son and I have witnessed my own mother experiencing the stress and pain and trauma that Heather was describing. I'm also really excited about sharing this episode because I think this is the beginning of a larger discussion about the honestly sad state of mental health care, not just in the US, but around the world. But for now, if you'd like to learn more about Heather or stay up to date with all that she is doing, her social links are in the description of this episode. As always, the social links for the Students of Mind team are listed in the description below, as well as any resources mentioned in the show. Thank you again for listening. I hope you learned something new or resonated with something you heard today, and I will see you next time. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.